You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Allison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So You Want to Be a Writer. This is Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. Alison, how are you this week? I'm extremely well. I'm sitting here just quietly contemplating my life. I've got one more week before the school holidays, and I'm, I'm just working hard. School holidays, geez. I know. They're going to be here all the time for two weeks. Anyway. What have you been up to apart from contemplating life? Oh, just writing. I'm writing and I'm writing and I'm writing because that's all I'm doing at the moment. I've just really got, um, you know, focused on deadlines. Somebody asked me today, you know, how I managed to get through the amount of work that I get through with all the different things that I do. And I explained to them that it is absolutely impossible without deadlines, even if you have to impose them upon yourself. (laughs) It's as simple as that. What about you, Val? What have you been up to? Uh, so this morning I did a keynote speech in front of about 300 people about my book, about power stories. Um, and that was really fun. It was a great crowd. So it was, um, it's really rewarding. And this, I think it's one of these things that, um, as authors, you, you need to do these days because I find that definitely after I do a speaking engagement, there's certainly a spike in terms of book sales. Oh, fantastic. So, yeah, we talked so, about that a couple of weeks ago with our with the public um, speaking for authors book, and I remember you talking about your um, speaking coach. Mm. And uh, so, were you nervous this morning? I was a bit, actually. Um, I'm not sure why. I think it's because there were a couple of people in the audience who I knew, and that always makes a difference when you've kind of got friends in the audience. I think, um, as opposed to having you know a, a crowd that you don't know. So it's, it's actually it's, worse for you if there's a friendly face there. Ah, uh, well, it was this morning, but I got over it, you know. <laughs> it was good fun in the end. Excellent. So, yes, but let's have a look at what's happening in the world of writing and blogging and publishing this week. We've got the Hoopla, which is, you know, um, the site that has been founded by Wendy Harmer. Um, and they've announced that they are going to charge for content. So they're going to have a paywall. Um, After three years of providing, you know, their site for free, they're actually going to relaunch and they're going to charge, well, they're going to offer subscriptions priced at 99 cents for a day pass or you can have monthly options or a $75 annual subscription. So, I mean, that's quite a big step for the Hoopla. What are your thoughts on this? Um, Well, I agree that it's a massive step. And I would point out, I think that the $75 annual subscription is just an introductory rate. And after that, it does go up to, um, you know, um, after a certain date, it goes up to, I think, 120 or thereabouts a year. Um, Look, I think this is such a difficult subject. I think we've got so used to the internet being free and everything being provided for free that it's going to be, I mean, it's you know, it's already sent a bit of a shockwave through the online community. I know there was quite a discussion about it um, on 
the Facebook page of Mrs. Woog from Woog's World yesterday. Um, I think it's a good thing that they're offering a range of, of options. Like if they're, you know, 99 cents for a day pass, if there's a particular story that you wanted to follow or whatever. Um, and there's also a good introductory rate. Uh, look, I don't know. Look, it's one of those situations where I think it's probably, I mean, obviously we've seen several of the large news organisations do it. Um, and it will be interesting to see if they, having done it, whether other well-known Australian sites follow their lead. Mm. Um, whether it's going to work out for them, I don't know. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot, Al. Make, make a call. What, am I going to? buy a subscription to the Hoopla? Well, A, are you going to buy a subscription? B, make a call. Do you think it's going to work? To be honest with you, I would be surprised if it works. Will I buy a subscription? The reality of that is that I probably will. And the reason for that is that I am a working writer and the more options that are available for working writers to to submit work to is better for me. And if we don't support them, then who's going to support them. You can't, it's like, it's like you hear so many times, you know, um, people want to write Australian fiction. When was the last yeah. time they bought an Australian novel? They can't remember. Um, you know, it's, it's, I think that it's, it's like with magazines, you know, I write for magazines and I subscribe to, you know, regularly to a whole range of different magazines because if I don't support them, who's going to? And if I want to sell my work to them, then I need to make sure that they're still viable. <laughs> it's as simple yeah. as that. And I can't do that on my own, obviously. Like my, my one subscription is not going to make a massive difference. But um, it is, it does make a difference. I mean, I, I remember, I would think when Jonathan Holmes left, um, Oh, was it him? Media Watch Media said, you know, that basically, um, you know, support Australian newspapers online, buy a subscription or, or buy a daily paper because if we don't, then our trusted sources of news disappear. So, yeah. so will, I, will I buy one? Probably, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's just my thoughts on it anyway. What about you, Val? I think that... Um I will subscribe because for the exact same reasons as you. Yeah. I feel that it's important to support my peers and I think it's great that they're making a go of it. But if I was forced to make a call, um, sadly, I would have to say I don't think it's going to work. I don't think a paywall, I don't think the in terms of the business model, the number of subscriptions that you need to sustain the business is going to work. I do think that it does boil down to more innovative um, ways to generate revenue because they've built a great brand and there's other ways that they can generate revenue for sure. But I'm not sure whether they're exploring those ways. Obviously, I'm not privy to their, to their business plans and I do hope that they've got these other revenue generating channels in place because, um, I think that that will, uh, if they play their cards right, play their cards right, that will um, be a lot better than relying on subscription because you've got to get, you got to get a lot of subscriptions to, to sustain it. But let's um, uh, wait and see. Wait and see. I mean, hopefully, I mean, I really hope that, that, that they, you know, buck that trend and prove us wrong. You know, really, yeah. I do. Absolutely. Now, there was a great uh, post on Lifehacker, um, lifehacker.com.au this week by James Clear. And I thought it was really interesting because it's it's called The Myth of Creative Inspiration. 
great artists don't wait. And ba- it's, a, it's a great read and we'll put it in the show notes. <clears throat> and the show notes are at writerscentercomau slash podcast. Um, but it's a great read because it's all about the fact that great artists, you know, they don't wait for inspiration to strike. Ultimately, um, the author, who is James Clear, he talks about how great artists have a routine and it's all about discipline and he gives an example that um, Maya Angelou rents a local hotel room and goes there to write she arrives at 6 30 a.m writes till 2 p.m then goes home to do some editing and you know she does that every day and so that's that's the thing is that people kind of think I just need that a great idea I just need to be inspired but the reality is that you just need to put your bum on the chair and start typing because sometimes you might think all this crap comes out but you have to get through the crap in order to get to the gold so I think it's a great post what are your thoughts on that do you do you just force yourself to write sometimes or do you find that you can wait for inspiration to strike? I never wait for the muse because as far as I'm concerned in my life, the muse is always stuck on a train or in the car park or can't find a park or something when I need her. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, being, um, you know, a working mum writer, um, I have to write when I've got time and, and the time may not be, you know, not me necessarily amenable to great bursts of inspiration, but um, it's, a, it's a kind of like, well, here's my window. So I'm either going to produce my, you know, thousand words or my two thousand words or whatever I'm going to attempt to do that day in that window or I'm not going to get them done at all and and you know I remember sort of um I asked a question I think on my blog one time and I was talking about this notion that people have that they you know inspiration strikes in the middle of the night and they get up and they write and I can honestly say that I have never had an inspiring thought in the middle of the night because I am <laughs> way too tired and asleep. And even if I did, I, I couldn't get up to do anything about it because I'd be so worried I was going to wake the rest of the household and deal with, you know, children and God knows what else that goes with that. Oh, yeah. So you just, you know, it's a matter of, oh, well, I'm just going to have to file that in my subconscious and hope like hell that when I sit at my computer the next day it's going to come. Um, I think this, yeah, there's, there's, there is a myth of this, you know, great artist sitting alone in a darkened garret awaiting the flash you know but it's it's not true and most people most people who produce books and most people who who are writing articles regularly and most people who are doing all those things they are writing regularly whether that be under the guise of the muse with her you know support and love or just without her you know, and I'm without her most of the time. I've got to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody who obviously has had inspiration strike him, or who knows, maybe it's through a great amount of discipline, is Russell Brand. Because our next story, I mean, Russell Brand, we're used to seeing him in movies, in doing stand up. He has written, you know, a couple of memoirs, but he's now turned his hand to write children's books, and he's written his first children's book. So the book is called The Pied Piper of Hamlet and apparently it's the first in a series of fairy stories um, as part of a series called Russell Brand's Trickster Tales. So I think that's kind of interesting, you know, when Gwyneth Paltrow decides to write a book or when Eva Longoria decides to um, write a cookbook or, or that sort of thing. Somehow, Do you think that sometimes it's a bit easier for celebrities to decide, oh, I'm now going to turn my hand at XYZ, something completely unrelated to what they're actually skilled at? Well, when Keith Richards announced earlier this year that he was writing a children's book, 
I thought, now I would actually pay money for that. (laughs) (laughs) It's called Gus and Me, the story of my granddad and my first guitar. And having read his, um, you know, autobiography, Life, which I just, you know, found extraordinary because, I mean, I just really wanted more songwriting stuff in there. I really wanted to know more about how he, how it, how it happened, how it all, you know, where it came from. Um, but, yeah, when I saw that, I, I thought, okay, that's interesting. And now Russell Brand is doing it. And I thought, but, you know, I have to say that the, the little video that he used to, to um, announce, well, for starters, it's called The Pied Piper of Hamelin and hasn't that story been done, which, you know, really. Um, but then I saw the, 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 the little video and I, I was kind of, I did put it this way, it didn't get me in. I, that's all I want to say. I could, it didn't get me in. I, Keith Richards, yes, I will buy that book because I'm really, really interested to see what he does with a children's book. Yeah. Russell Brand, maybe not so much. But, you know, look, I'm sure he's a very clever man. You know, he's got a mm, lot of, absolutely. you know, amazing creative talent. And I think if you are a, an amazingly creative person in many ways, you know, why not have a go? Um, yes, were he not Russell Brown, would it have been published? I don't know. But we haven't seen it yet. Yeah. It might be amazing. It might be amazing. So let's not – okay, no, fair enough. I, I, I won't I pass it. Yeah, I think we need, to, I think we need to, to see what it is. And as I said, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll buy Keith's. Will I buy Russell's? Not so sure, but I'll have a look at it. <laughs> Okay, and we'll put the video in the show notes as well. Yes. But speaking of celebrity, somebody who's become quite a celebrity for, you know, probably all the wrong reasons is Julian Assange. Yes. And um, he's announced that he's going to publish the book when Google met WikiLeaks. So um, it's kind of an interesting premise, but uh, basically it's about a conversation that took place um, between Julian and the Google Executive Chairman Eric Schmidt. And basically it's kind of about as Julian's thoughts on how to overhaul the internet, the naming structure of the internet, and how to revolutionize the way information is accessed. So it's going to be a little bit of a thought leadership piece and very theoretical. I'm not sure whether people are going to get out of it what they hope, which, um, you know, a lot of people are intrigued by his story because of um, his journey, because of everything that he's going through, whereas this is kind of like, this is stuff that's coming out of Julian's brain. But um, it's something that's going to sell, you know. We've we've had the Julian Assange miniseries on Channel 10 and then we've had the Benedict Cumberbatch um, starring as Julian Assange in um, The Fifth Estate. Did you see that movie at no, all? No, I didn't. I didn't. Did you? Was it good? Uh, yeah. I mean, I thought he did a brilliant job do, um, as Julian and it, it was interesting. There's nothing that we didn't already necessarily know. Um, but he's quite, he, he's, he's a draw card, isn't he, Julian Assange these days? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's a name that, you know, people are, are fairly interested in, in what he's, I mean, well, you know, it's one of those names that divides, splits and divides and conquers because people are either completely disinterested or if they are interested, then, then they're very invested in the whole thing. So from that perspective, it will probably sell quite well to the invested persons. Um, <laughs> I read the press release, uh, the little paragraph that's on the um, announcement and, and to be honest, you know, probably not going to be on my bookshelf. Um, <laughs> oh, well, you know, I just, uh, look, you know. You don't really want to know how to access information on the internet with a different naming structure? Well, no. I mean, if there was something in there that could help us all with, you know, will a paywall make money or how to actually, you know, <laughs> 
hay riders on the internet, then yes, I'd be all over it. But um, this particular book, probably not. But I do believe that he has a massively invested audience and they will probably buy his book. Yes, it'd be interesting to see what people think about it. Well, speaking of what people think of your book, um, a friend of mine, Paul Jones, sent me a study this week. It was pretty interesting because it's all about how um, awards can negatively affect what people think of your book. Um, I found that really surprising. So, you know, like it's it's if you won the man booker, um, it's likely that the reviews of your book were going to be more negative than if you were just one of the finalists or on the shortlist. So, this is a study comparing thousands of reader reviews on goodreads.com and it was over a period of years and they looked at books that either won or were shortlisted for prestigious book awards and that's basically what they found. If you won the award, you were going to have far more negative reviews than if you were just shortlisted. Now, they go on to try and explain that this is possibly because when you win the award, it attracts more people with more diverse tastes and therefore the probability is that there's going to be some more people who aren't going to be, you're not going to be their cup of tea. Um, But also, it kind of um, implies that there's just a negative um, attitude to books that are more popular. (laughs) So, it's like tall poppy syndrome for books. Kind of, yeah, but I was really surprised at that. Don't you find that surprising? Well, I I do find it surprising. I guess I I do understand what they're saying from the perspective of, you know, you will often often only hear about a book because it's won an award, like in the sense of it's – because we're often talking, you know – high-end literary fiction here and so a lot of for the for the kind of mass population who don't tend to read that sort of book um this may be the first time they've ever heard of it and and often when the the book is actually described they sound amazing because you know a lot of them are amazing at the end of the day um and so people will buy it and they will have an expectation perhaps that it's going to be world altering because it's won the man booker and then perhaps you know it's as you say not their cup of tea or it's a bit disappointing or or whatever there is also a little bit of a well you know it should have been better one star like goodreads does have a little bit of that going on too like there's a certain element of um you know people will give you one star for just they didn't like something you wrote on twitter you know (laughs) it's a fairly it's a fairly um a difficult environment in many ways um but i do find it funny that the shortlisted ones will sell more is is it is it because not sell more will get more positive reviews we'll get more positive reviews maybe it's because people are trying to make them feel better you know about the fact that they didn't win I don't, I don't know. I, I, I just think, I guess, that it, it carries – when you win an award like that, one of those big literary awards, you, you do come with baggage. I think your book comes with baggage. And I think if people don't unpack that baggage properly, then it may lead to a, to a negative review, perhaps. Yeah, so the crowd is a great equaliser. They don't want you to get, you know, too full of yourself if you win. And if you don't win, no. they're trying to prop you up. Yeah, they're trying <laughs> okay. to make you feel better. So what's going on in the world of blogs this week? Um, well, interesting uh, thing this week. I was looking around at different um, ways that, that writers, you know, build their platforms and things like that, and I came across a great little um, blog post about Pinterest for writers Ooh. because Pinterest, I think, is one of those things that a lot of writers just go, "Oh, nice pictures of bathrooms. That's not for me," <laughs> which is kind of what I used to. I mean, I used to 
sort of use it to pin soothing pictures of bathrooms when I was having a bad moment trying to work through my manuscript. Do you have a bathroom thing too? Well, no, I've actually – it's it, it goes into a board called uh, Things I – what did I put it under? I've got some very fabulous boards. I've got one called Things I Love But Will Never Do. Oh, yeah. So it may be on that one or it could be on Things That Make Me Go Mmm, which is a kind of a mash of bathrooms and shoes and all sorts of different things. But I also like to pin pictures of redheads. I have a lovely board uh-huh. called People with uh, people Who Don't Have Red Hair Don't Know What Trouble Is, and that, that's quite a fabulous one. But anyway, that's, let's not talk about my boards. But I guess um, the thing is that Pinterest can actually be an incredibly useful tool for writers, but it can also be a great place for writers to go to find inspiration. And this particular blog post um, was on a blog called The Write Life, and it was called 20 Inspiring Pinterest Boards for Writers. And it goes through um, a whole range of them, like Jody Headland has a how-to-edit board, mm. which has got a whole lot of articles and images and checklists and all sorts of stuff you know, for people who are trying to edit their own work, and because it's not easy to do that, then Writer's Relief has one called Getting Help With Your Writing. So, that's just a lot of resources or, you know, someone who's, there may be um, articles pinned there about finding a writing mentor. There's, obviously, there's pictures of fantastic covers. You know, um, Book Riot has Cover Loving Board, which has just got all it is is masses and masses of covers. So if you're looking for inspiration for an ebook cover or something like that, you may find some kind of design there for you. But it's just, I guess, it's not a place that writers necessarily think to go to look for this kind of stuff. No, so good. it's really worth having a look at this list and thinking, okay, um, you know, where are you at in your writing process? Is there anything there that can help you? And then going and having a quick look. And it's not a bad place for writers who are using Pinterest to go to get some ideas of what kind of boards they could potentially be doing because I think that's the other thing. Writers often don't quite know what to do with Pinterest. And I think that one of the things that they could do is um, if you're writing fiction, you can create your character's world through images. So, you know, you could this is the kind of house that he would live in. These are the, This is the kind of food he would eat. This is the kind of car he would drive. And it might be useful to use Pinterest to create the different scenes and the different worlds that your characters live in because then you can, you know, just see it visually. Well, and the thing is, you know, Pinterest is one of those places that – is often overlooked as a source of traffic for for people, you know, who are looking for inspiration or looking for blog posts or whatever. And it can be huge. It can be a massive driver of traffic. So if you're looking at trying to get, you know, um, interest in your blog or interest in your platform or interest in whatever it is you're doing, as you say, you you know, your work in progress, whatever you're doing, um, it's it's worth thinking about how you could use something like that to, to get it out there. But that comes with a caveat. Um it's a massive time suck. Yeah. So it's one of those places that you can go and then, you know, like an hour later you look at the you look up and go, Whoa, what happened there? Um, so it's it's really worth working out whether the time you're going to invest is going to be worth the outcome. And that's something you're probably only going to get through trial and error. But I, I just think with with all forms of social media, um, writers need to find out what works for them. Yeah, and don't get into procrastinating. Yeah, if you're doing soothing pictures of bathrooms, chances are that that's what you're doing. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, so who's our writer in residence this week? Our writer in residence this week is a man who probably does not do very much procrastinating because <laughs> we are talking to Jack Ellis. He's a debut Australian novelist. His um, his uh, first book was launched uh, just, well, just in the last week or so, so he's probably too busy to be doing much pinning at all right now. Um, but the interesting thing about Jack, we had a fantastic conversation about the writing process and how he went about it. And as you'll find through the interview, he took quite a different approach to the, to the way that most of us write these days. So it's a great interview and I hope you enjoy it. Let's listen to Jack Ellis. Today we're welcoming Jack Ellis, debut author, as our writer-in-residence. Jack describes himself as a writer of prose and songs, and his first novel, The Best Feeling of All, has just been published by Arcadia. So, Jack, your first novel, how does it feel to see it on the shelves? Oh, it feels like a bit of a shock, I suppose, really. Like, the um, uh, the stack of books that I saw at the launch was pretty daunting, but I was very happy when they sold. Well, that's always a good start, isn't it? Like if you yeah. can actually sell some at your launch, you're doing <laughs> you're, you're off to a flying start. Is it is it sort of um, you know? Does it feel like you thought it would? Is it a little bit anticlimactic? Like what does it feel like in the sense that you put so much work into this thing and now it's out there? And is it a bit like okay, what happens next? Um, I suppose so. The one of the feelings that was a bit surprising is that. I have a sort of pretty profound sense that now the hard bit starts, that that writing and, um, you know, creating and publishing a book is, is one part, but the actual real challenge is getting people to read it. Okay, and so do you have any thoughts or any plans about how you're going to do that? Is there a, you know, world domination plan in action? Um, well, a... Um a world domination plan of sorts, but it's just, I suppose, those conventional things of talking to readers through radio interviews and, and podcasts like yours, Alison, and um, also press and, and writing articles. I've got an article up on Mamma Mia today, and, um, right. and I've got various other, you know, articles and reviews and things. So at this stage, it's just trying to kind of keep a conversation going and generate a bit of interest, yeah. and it seems to be working pretty well. Fantastic. Okay, well, let's, why don't you tell us a little bit about The Best Feeling of All? Where did the idea come from? It's a funny story, actually. The the um the first thing that I I uh, that happened was I actually got the title, and it was in a dream. Uh, but it wasn't. It was a different title. It was the original title that I knew no one would ever publish. So, um, the the original title title is Love Is Moles Dyer, and oh. so before I ever had um any th- idea about the book, I had the title from a dream, which was very strange. Wow. And then um. I, I really wanted to write a book to try and capture some of that sort of sparkling intensity of being young. And because um, I do think that those sort of early years, particularly around sort of, you know, 14, 15, 16, are when everything is most alive for us, you know, and before yeah. the kind of scar tissue of, um, of heartbreak and things begin to seal over us, when we're absolutely open to the intensity of love and friendships and things. And I wanted to capture some of that, but then also show the way that those early impulses and early decisions that, that we have and those, those crazy things we do sort of then reverberate through our lives. So why did you choose to write it from a female point of view? Um, well, I think that the on one level it's um, it was liberating in the sense that if you write sort of someone who's like you, um, sort of your age, your sex, then everyone kind of assumes that every bad thing they do is a sort of veiled uh, revelation of something about you. <laughs> okay, and so 
so partly I think I think some writers have, have and I've been reading a fair bit of historical stuff there's been a lot of historical fiction and things around now get that sense of distance by putting it in a different era and get that sense of freedom by putting it in a different era but I just think that um, what I really wanted to capture was the intensity of of young friendships and I think young women seem to feel and foster those intense friendships better than young men do. Okay, yeah, because it's quite an interesting thing. I mean, as we were just, you know, discussing before we pressed record, the, I, you know, having started the book, I haven't actually finished it yet, but I have started it, and I, I found the immediacy of it and the, the, I really felt like I was, you know, right in it from the start. Did you have to, I mean, I guess, did you start with that feeling and you're not, like, it, let's talk a little bit about the drafting process. Sure. Is that how you started the book in the first place? Yes, it is. And um, with this book, um, I very much wrote it from the first page to last page. And I wrote by hand. Um, really? Because, yeah, because wow. I find that, that writing on a computer is too fast. Um, what, you, what I think, when I write on computers, I mean, I, I write on computers a lot. And, you know, when I'm drafting an email or something like that, I tend to sort of splurt it all out there kind of and then rearrange it as a second step. Right. Whereas I find when you write by hand, it um, you form the whole sentence and then the whole phrase and then the whole um, paragraph kind of in your head before you put pen to paper. Mm -hmm. And so um, what that ends up doing for me is that I've, you know, I've attempted writing longer things on, on, uh, on the computer is that I edit a lot less. So although the initial drafting is slower because you know you're forced to slow down to do it by with your pen, um, the actual whole drafting process is much faster because you edit a lot less. Okay, so so it wasn't a case of like getting the first draft down and then going back and rearranging the whole thing. It was it was start to finish. Yeah, it was very much start to finish, and I'd say there were probably three drafts. So um, and they were. Um, uh, but nothing major structural. The structure was always the same. Page order, sequence of events was always the same. It's just there are a few things that I changed in subsequent drafts to sort of alter the tone of the the, the narrative a little bit to um, to make it more consistent once I'd sort of got to the end. Okay. So you have – this is not the first novel you've ever attempted? Like you have tried longer form writing before? Yeah, I've got, I've got another book that I wrote um, called Manga Rain, which is um, set in Cambodia. And um, it was uh, – I, I approached that in a different sort of way where I wrote in sort of bits and pieces and moved it around and things. Um, and, yeah, that book's still unpublished, but it's uh, – yeah, so this is effectively my second go at it. Okay. All right. And what do you think you learnt from the first to the second? Right from the beginning to the end, I really, really do, yeah, I really do think that that um, for me, right by hand and right from the beginning to the end. The other things, I mean, I don't know how how specific you want to get to, to be, but right in the morning rather than the night. Yeah. Um, these are all just things that are personal to me, obviously. Yeah. But I um, I find that if I try and write in the evenings, I, my head's already full of the day's events. Whereas you kind of, if if you get up and you do it more or less first thing, then you're sort of still still fresh. And um, I know I can keep going with more specifics. Don't write more than um, uh, twelve hundred words in a day, um, mm -hmm. because I find that if you do that, you and you take a wrong turn, it's um, it's you've you've gone too far to kind of work your way back. Right, so, okay, you've got a lot of crossing out to do, yeah, particularly you do. when you're doing and, it by hand, it, yeah. Yeah, and so it sort of, and it can, have, it can sort of taint the rest of the book. So, yeah, yeah, so okay. I, I, it was very much a, a, um, 
an experience of slowing things down and doing things in a very methodical and systematic way rather than just sort of squirting it all out. Okay, so do you think that your experience with songwriting and features articles, because you do that as well, mm. helped or hindered when it came to writing a novel? With the um, songwriting, I actually studied classical music first. So I did a degree in uh, classical composition at the Sydney Conservatorium and then I, um, I spent a year on scholarship in The Hague studying um, classical Ooh. composition. Wow. And I think the classical composition degree probably helped my writing more than anything else. Okay. I think that the um, the musical notion of structuring things, of of um, kind of giving birth to and developing motives and themes throughout a book um, is very much the same as as you would do in in uh, in a classical uh, composition. And I suppose I mean I've gone for a classic sort of three movement structure with this yeah, book. Yeah, so definitely. Perhaps it's, uh, you know, a, a very direct kind of musical structural idea okay that's really that's really interesting like I when you say that I can see that coming through in your book yeah. um, so what was the process to publication then like you you've written the, the draft you've got yourself you know there you are with it what what happened next uh, then I went and just submitted it to agents so okay. um, and thankfully uh, Curtis Brown took me on quickly yeah and then they um, sort of put it about to um, various publishers and then Arcadia was the first one to say yes. And so how long did that process take? Like how long did it take you to write the book and then how long from there was it to publication? It took about 18 months to write the book and um, then it was probably about another 18 months from like to yesterday when, or Saturday when the book was launched. Fantastic. So um, was there anything that surprised you about that publication process? One thing that I suppose I was a bit naive about and I would encourage all writers to be naive about it because it's um, a, a fairly stifling sort of thing is how strict the sort of genre guidelines are in terms of what publishers expect and the way that they think about marketing books right. and the way that they think about where it will sit in what kind of bookshop and all of that sort of stuff. Now, I know it's probably wise to have you know a market in mind when you're starting a book, but I also think that that can be incredibly restricting and, and that unless you write – I think ultimately you have to write a book kind of for yourself. That's what I have to do anyway. And if – you know, if I had known more about the marketing, I probably would have done things differently and that would have been a mistake. Because one of the, the real challenges with marketing this book is it begins when the girls are 15. Yeah. And so to your average impatient reader, there's a risk that they can open up and see 15-year-old girls talking and think, oh, well, this is just a kid's book. Yeah. But even though the majority of it takes place when they're adults yeah. and it's very much an adult book, um, there is that marketing problem with it. And um, there are elements of it that are perhaps, you know, um, a little confronting for um, school librarians and things like that. So it's, it, uh, it does kind of sit in this weird um, gap between genres that, that proved a little challenging when it came to marketing. To where to put it in the bookshop, basically. Yeah, effectively. And, and it's almost the first question a bookseller will ask. And, um, and I suppose when I set out to write a book, I wasn't thinking in those terms. Well, it's interesting you say that because I, I guess, because um, I really love the cover of the book. Uh -huh. I think it's a fabulous cover. And, um, but I, I confess that I was surprised when I opened the book, not, not because, because mainly I hadn't read any blurbs about it. I didn't know anything about it before I opened the book. And I was surprised to find a female perspective <laughs> given the orange cover. <laughs> uh -huh. And then I went back to look at the cover again, cause I'd sort of taken it in and I looked at it again and I could see that you that there is elements of the entire, you know, female life cycle within that cover. And, um, I, I'd found that quite an interesting 
experience, I guess. Mm. Well, I, as you know, I think when people see a male's um, name on the book, um, they are sometimes uh, surprised to see that the central characters are, are girls. Yes, yes. Mm. All right, so um, now the sort of new modern eternal question, were you asked by your agent or publisher to build a, a social media presence before the book came out or had you already begun doing that or like was there any sort of feeling that you needed to do that to market the book? Absolutely, yeah, and um, it wasn't so much. I, I, I actually attended a, um, a thing about, you know, e-books and things at the New South Wales Writers' Centre where the Deb McGuinness, who eventually became the publicist for the book, was speaking, and, um, and she talked about the way of building this kind of author platform online. And, um, yeah, so I tried to build up, um, sort of start having conversations with readers um, before the book was even published, and so how uh, long ago did you start that? Like when? Like what? Probably what about was the advice you were given. How much notice do you kind of need to give people that you're out there? Well, the the, the advice was now. <laughs> so yeah, anytime, um, but yeah, now is yeah, good. <laughs> now is good. Yeah, and so I don't think there's such a thing as too long. Um, I think that if you are looking to promote a book, then the more engaged and big your um, online. Um, sort of networks are then the better okay and so what have you uh, do you enjoy that like are you are you a fan of the social media you know of publicizing or are you or are you the kind of person who would rather just put the book out and allow it to speak for itself well I think it's well it's a combination of two things I mean there's an element to which I do regard it as work but there's nothing more gratifying when when you get someone writing to you and say, oh, they love the book and they were crying at the end and, you know, all that sort of thing. So it really has its re rewards. I suspect the thing that I'm having to learn, because I'm not, although I'm relatively young, I'm not a sort of real online person by nature, is I'm trying to sort of work out what the right balance is between promotion and just engagement. Yeah. And so I've kind of tried to, to separate those two things so that I'm just engaging with, with people on a human level and on an intellectual and emotional level and then if they want to find out more about me it's very easy for them to discover I've got a book out rather than sort of shoving it down their throats the whole time. Which is the fantastic approach to take. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what do you think, like what would you say were the three biggest lessons you've learned, you know, sort of during the writing and birth of your first novel? Mm, I wish mm. I'd prepared for this question. Sorry. Um, <laughs> i like to throw those ones out right at the end. Okay. Um, well, I would say the three biggest things I learned are, um, well, again, they're process things, like yeah. about how to actually write and finish a book. Yeah. And I think that's to stay true to yourself, to start at the beginning and finish at the end, um, and to, um, to not put pressure on yourself to... Uh, finish things too quickly and not to do things too quickly. That slower and more methodical is good. I yep. think that's an important thing. Yep. Then I think listen to advice I think would be the second thing. Um, there are people out there who know how to promote and publish and do things who have a much better idea than you do and even though what they're saying might be a bit counterintuitive, I'd say listen uh, to your advice. Uh, listen to the, to the advice of people who have done this before. And the other thing I would say is when um, when working with a, a um, publisher, get on the front foot. So what I mean by that is 
um, supply your own ideas for the cover, um, push. So that, like, I supplied that cover. I arranged it. Oh, did um, you? Yeah. I arranged a designer myself, had the idea myself to do it that way because the more things that you can be supplying to the publisher and that they're responding to you, then the more likely you are to end up somewhere in the middle that you'll be happy with rather than if you're just responding to the publisher, then they've already paid for a cover, they've already done whatever they've done and so they, you know, then they're reluctant to kind of move. If you don't like it, they're reluctant to sort of move too far back. So I would say... From, from the word go when, when working with the publisher, what I learned this time is here's what I'm thinking for the cover, here's what I'm thinking for the blurb, here's what I'm thinking about promotion, here's what I'm thinking, here's what I'm thinking, here's what I'm thinking. Because to a certain extent, if you're coming up with ideas that are good or at least acceptable, then you're also making it easier for them. So um, I would say those are probably the three things. That's fantastic. That's fantastic advice. Um, okay, last question. Are you working on something new like, or are you just so in the bubble with this book at the moment that that's, that's all you can think about right now? No, I'm, uh, I'm about halfway into another one. Um, and so with a bit of luck, I'll have that finished. I had hoped to have it finished by now, but things sort of got... Um, got overtaken so I hope to have it finished by sort of the end of the year maybe November something like that and um, yeah it's another novel. Fantastic all right Jack well thank you so much for talking to me today I really appreciate your insight into the into the process of you know being there getting your book over the line so congratulations again and um, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me on. Great interview Al. Yeah it was great I I love talking to people you know with I think taboo novelists are always got they're so interesting and passionate because it's, you know, they're right at the start and it's all new and it's all exciting. So, yeah, and I really enjoyed it. And now we love hearing from our community and also from our listeners. So what did we uh, ask them this week? Well, this week we had a little chat on the Writers' Centre Facebook page, which is, you know, such an enthusiastic community. I love it because I put a question up and I've got a million responses within the space of about four seconds. <laughs> I, well, I, I And I wondered how I'd go this week. Week, to be honest with you, um, because the question I asked was, do you have a favourite poem? And I know that poetry is one of those things that, you know, tends to get a bit of a bad rap and in the sense that I, I think, you know, people study it at school mm. or at uni and then never go back as far as, it, as far as it goes. But, you know, no, this is not the case, Alison. You need to get over yourself because there were, there's a lot of people out there with a lot of favourite poems. And one of the things I found quite interesting about it, though, is that so many of them of the, the responses we got are you classic poets. T.S. Yeah. Eliot, Percy Shelley, um, Yeats, uh, Poe, you know, we're all recognising those names from our, you know, high school studies or whatever, even if that was the last time mm. that you ever looked at a poem. Um, and there were um, a few Australian poems mentioned, um, but not as many as I might have imagined. Um, so Dorothy McKellar's My Country got a good rap, and oh, yes. and so did uh, Henry Lawson. Ah, oh, there you go, The Water Lily by Henry Lawson. Um, but, you know, it's only been up a short period of time, but they're the only two that have been mentioned so far, and not very many modern poets. So, I mean, what, what do you think is the reason for that? Do you think poetry is one of those things that people put in the too hard basket? I think that what's interesting is that in Australia, we don't have many books of poetry. We don't have um, a great sort of 
poetry kind of um, culture um, compared to other countries. I remember the days when in newspapers there used to be poems, in Australian newspapers, that used really? poems used to be featured. Yeah, I remember when the Herald used to have them in. <laughs> um, <laughs> gone are those days. I mean, there was only like one or two per week, yeah. but there's none now. No. Um, and But other in other countries you will find that they will publish books of poetry and it's not that unusual. You will have poetry readings and I think that what people like Miles Merrill um, and other spoken word specialists are doing is great because it's, you know, trying to get poetry, although they call it spoken word now, um, back into the culture. And it's kind of, and it, it can be, and I've been to some of these events overseas and it's really inspiring because it's not just performance. It's so clever and it's so much talent with the way people can use words in that poetry kind of form. But um, what's your favourite poem? I want to know that. Well, I knew you were going to ask me that, and I've been <laughs> and I have been sitting here thinking to myself that you know I, I was going to need a very clever answer for that, but <laughs> I don't <laughs> I don't know that I have one. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I I, I um T I have several books of T S Eliot's poetry. Do I have a favourite? I'm not sure. Mm. Um, when was the last time I read it? I can't remember. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. it's, it's it's the kind of thing where you know I I loved I did actually love them when I studied them at yeah. school. And at university, um, but it's not something that I actually read on a regular basis. And I think, in many ways, it's a real shame because it's such a rich use of language. Like it is, you know, if not the one of the richest uses of language. And I know that it's out there. You know, there's the there's still a lot of people. People still write it. It's not yes. like that's not happening. It's just I guess that we're not seeing as much of it published. And I am going to make it one of my objectives. I'm going to find me a poet to talk to for this webs for for this podcast we're going to talk about this and i may find one um sooner than i think because um i received some information yesterday about the hunter writers center um is running the newcastle poetry prize um and for the for 2014 it's celebrating its 33rd year so this is not a new wow. thing. this has been around for th- there's a $20,000 prize pool Gotta which is that. you know fantastic <laughs> and entries close on Friday the 20th of June. So that gives people, you know, a few months to give some thought to their poetry and dust off and polish it up and see what they can come up to with. First prize is $12,000. So I'm just saying, you know, give it some thought. Um, and we'll put the link to that in the show notes. But, you know, it makes me, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy that these kinds of things are still out there. People are still being encouraged to do it. And, and I am going to find me a poet. I'm going to find one to talk to. Good. Enter, everyone. Do it. Yes, enter. Exactly. And Alison will come back to us on her favourite poem in a future podcast. <laughs> but I've we, read them again. <laughs> yeah, we like hearing from you, the listeners. So if you want to be part of the conversation when we ask these sorts of questions, that's over at facebook.com slash writers centre. Um, so check us out there. Um, but let's move on to our working writers tip. Now... I think this is a interesting question because I get asked this a lot and you know how do you do a good interview so I thought I'd um ask you what are your top three tips for a productive interview and when I mean interview I mean when you're interviewing somebody for information or a profile because you're going to write a feature article in a magazine so those sorts of interviews I don't mean when you're going for a job you know <laughs> so right. what's your what are your top three tips well, I think that one of the most important um, 
aspects of any interview is is asking the right questions. Oh, and yeah. I know that that sounds like a really, really stupid thing to say, but it comes from a... Um, I wrote a blog post on this uh, last year. Um, I, I was speaking to an editor friend of mine and she had a, a Q&A piece that had been submitted to her. And, uh, you know, I'd rung her and she was in the midst of gnashing her teeth over this story. And she's like, the answers are just not quite right. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, the questions aren't quite right. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, you really have to give some thought. I mean, it's not enough to just be like name, age, you know, location. And you've really got to think before you go into an interview about what you want to get out of the interview. Yep. And I think that that's something that um, often people will go into the interview and, and ask a million questions hoping that, that the point of it will all become clear in the midst of it. But mm-hmm. in, its, in many ways, I think you need to have the point or the angle for the story in the back of your head whilst you're compiling the question. So that would be my first my first tip would be make you know like work hard on your questions don't yeah. and and write them out you know don't just wing it because i think you know even now like i've been asking questions for a very very long time i write them down before i go and so i know that i'm going to ask what i want to ask and if i get sidelined then that's great but at least i can come back to the point i can come back to what i want to know so that's important i think the other thing you have to do is be prepared but not too prepared i remember when i first like some of the worst interviews i have ever done have been about people that I over-researched. I, I, I've, I, I kind of like I went into it knowing more about them and their subject than they did and it was just really boring. I was bored. They were bored. I, my questions were boring. Everything about it was dull, you know, whereas if I feel like I'm learning something along the way, I'm going to ask, you know, that's when I get those sideline questions that, that might actually work out quite mm. well. Um, so I think it's good to be a little bit bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, you know, like you kind of got to have some room in, the, in there to... To, um, to learn a bit as you go. Mm. And I think the third thing would be to, like I, I, I describe it as listening for the little bell. I, when I'm speaking to someone, I am always thinking in quotes. I'm yep. thinking, what can I use? What can I use? What can I use? And I keep, I keep asking the question in different ways if I need to until yeah. I get the ding in the back of my head that says, that's the quote. That's what I need. I've got what I need. And then I move on. And I think that you have to, um, you have to, and that comes with practice as well. Like mm. I mean, to be fair, um, so often it's a good idea if you if you've not got a lot of experience in interviewing, you know, practice. Go ask your mum some questions if you need to find out <laughs> stuff about her you don't know. But um, you need to listen for that little bell and know you know know that you've got a quote that you can at least you know build if not your whole story around, then at least some of it. So that would be my three. What about you? Mm. Uh, yes. So I've asked the question and haven't actually thought of my three myself. But oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> a bit like your poem thing. Um, I think <laughs> I'll that, bring that up. <laughs> I think that the over-researching thing is an interesting one, particularly when it comes to high-profile people because there's so much information out there on them. Yeah. And it, especially if you're dealing, say, with celebrities or people mm. who, are, who get interviewed a lot, I think that... Um, that's an interesting experience because for me, when that happens, when I'm interviewing somebody who has clearly been interviewed a lot, the challenge for me, a little game that I play with myself, is trying to get them engaged because most of the time they're just wrote, you know, they're, they're, they're just they're answering by rote. Yeah, they're just I saying totally the same agree. questions, yes. you know. Um, they're, they're asking, they're, they're being asked the same questions, so they're giving all these stock answers. So the challenge is to try and capture their imagination and get them with a question that they've never been, you know, asked before. And yeah. 
And it's great when you see them lean forward and engage or actually say, yeah, that's a really good question. I love that. When someone says, that's a great question, I just go, oh, there you go. My job is done. Exactly. (laughs) Or I've never been asked that before or, you know, anything like that. And I remember um, when I, you know, because I, you know, most people know I'm obsessed with John Bon Jovi. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I remember when I interviewed him, it's because I knew so much about the man because, yes, I'm obsessed with John Bon Jovi. I didn't know where to start because uh, there's so much that I could talk to him about. You had a fan moment. Yes. You? So, you know, he probably thought I was a stalker. But anyway, I started off um, talking about some things in his life and you could tell he was just brought out of his brain. And I thought, oh, my God, I've just got to work. I've got to work at this to make sure that I get that moment. I get that magic moment. And and I'm very happy to say that I finally nailed it um, when – well, he uh, – do you know the movie About a Boy with John yeah. Cusack, I think Yeah, it is. I love the song, yeah. Yes, and uh, no, no, he was – John Cusack, was he in that one? Wasn't that Hugh uh, Grant? No, Hugh Grant, Hugh, yeah, Grant. Hugh Grant. So I'm thinking of High Fidelity, the other yes. uh, Nick yeah. Hornby. Um, so Hugh Grant and uh, it, the movie tops and tails with a line from uh, John Bon Jovi and it opens with – um, a narration saying a, a wise man once said no man is an island and it was you know from one of um, John's albums and um, I brought that up you could just see him sit up and his entire body language changed and then he was he looked at me and a smile came off on, across his face and he was you know really engaged and he gave this fantastic answer and at the time Richie Sambora was in the room and he he had never heard of it either and he was he said hey john what what are we talking about here and john explained that this happened in the movie about a boy and and um you could tell that it was something that he was actually secretly proud of but which no very few people had asked him yay so, good wow yes very excited very that is exciting <laughs> oh actually can i just add one more thing there because i think yes. another really important thing when you're interviewing people is and again this sounds like a no brainer but he's actually not as easy as you think and that is to listen to what Mm. the people are actually saying to you because I think that it's really easy to go into automatic mode and you've got your questions and you're asking them and you're trying to get you know if if you're if you're transcribe if you're like writing as you go or typing as I often do if I'm doing a phone interview I'll actually just type as I go you know you can be so busy trying to do all that sort of stuff that you zone out a little bit and you're planning the story and you're listening for the dings and you're doing all that and then later you're reading over your notes and you think damn, why didn't I ask that? Because they've said something and you're not listening closely enough to actually pick up on it and go a little bit further with it. Um, So I guess, you know, if you're really listening to an interview, then you don't miss opportunities to ask the right questions and I think that's important too. Mm-mm. And you've got a great blog post on that, haven't you? About um, good questions. Oh, I do. I'll I'll um I'll put that in the show notes. Wonderful. All right, that brings us almost to the end of uh, today's episode. Now we really value your questions and comments. If you have any questions, please email us at podcast at writercenter.com.au. But also, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. That would be really valuable to us. So, um, and of course, if you have any comments, make a comment in the show notes as well. And that's at writercenter.com.au slash podcast. So tell me, Al, what are you going to be up to this week before we meet again and record the next episode? I'll give you three guesses and I think you will need only (laughs) one of them. 
I will be writing. I oh, know I'm quite excited. I have to say that I am very excited because two things. I I am getting very very close to finishing the draft that I'm working on for this for this uh, work in progress that I've been banging on about for the last several weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have like a real. I'm I'm on a roll with it at the moment. I'm so excited. You know, the end is in sight, and I'm like bashing out words, which is fantastic. And the other thing I'm really excited about is that I'm going to be announcing in my next newsletter what it's all about. I've got some massive news, and I'm really excited about about you know putting it out there. So you know, I, I've got stuff. I've got stuff going on. And where can people sign up for your next newsletter? Oh, they can sign up for it on my website, alisontate.com. And that's with two L's in Alison. It is indeed. And what about you? What are you up to? I'll be heading to Melbourne to spend some time in Melbourne at the Australian Writers' Centre there and um, organise a few things. And, you know, we're, we're certainly growing and holding lots of courses. So I'll be meeting yeah, some students. So that should be fun. That's coming up in the next week. So the next podcast recording may come to you from not so sunny Melbourne and um, <laughs> as opposed to not so sunny Sydney <laughs> yeah at the moment uh, but yes um, so that so that should be fun but Fantastic. Uh, we want to thank everyone for listening you can find us at ValerieKoo.com and also at AlisonTate.com and um, we look forward to chatting to you next time we do goodbye goodbye